bum bum bottom 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 bum b
I love the Our Encounters with Evil stories. Uh, you know, they started off as a collaboration with Mike Mignola, but really Mike Mignola let Warwick Johnson Cadwell take these characters into weird and wild directions all on his own. The most recent one was Falcon Spear, and Warwick was on the podcast to talk about Falcon Spear with That's us. That's right. And we have the comics, but we don't have it in this really nice hardcover. Lisa, but now you. we do. I thought that this would be a good gift because my theory about giving gifts, and I know this extends from my being an Enneagram 4, and it's so important that you are seen as an individual and a person. But when I give gifts, I want it to be something that we both enjoy. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that's my, my that's my philosophy when I give gifts as well. And I feel like I never would have found the Mignola verse independent of Brad. But mm. because of Brad, I read Hellboy, love Hellboy. And since then, like our love has blossomed, mm -hmm. the Mignolaverse has blossomed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, you couldn't imagine these stories coming out of the Mignolaverse, you know, back in the, I don't know, uh, Conqueror Worm days. Mm -hmm. But I love that we're here now. Yeah. And Mignola also just put out like those Lenore vampire comics. That's I haven't right. read them yet, but I'm excited to read them. You know, I love my vampires. But Warwick Johnson Cadwell, I think, is one of the most interesting cartoonists out there right now. He's obviously in love with old Hammer horror films, and that seeps into all of his work. And it's very much present in this volume. And it fits so nicely and snugly with Hellboy like stories. Mm -hmm, yeah. So thank so. you, my love. I hope and you enjoy it. You know that I feel the same way about giving gifts because I'm an only child and I want to force my enthusiasms onto <laughs> other people. Yeah, because I think that a gift should be a bridge. Yeah, and so you should think about that when you open your, your gift right there. Okay, so, so this is, this what is I'm opening gift. is a bridge. Yeah, you're, what you're opening is a bridge. Oh. <laughs> okay, here we go. Unwrapping. How about that wrapping job? I should do that closer to the mic so everybody gets the ASMR kind of like, yay. Okay, it's Ninja Turtles. Yeah! What is... Oh, it's in a pizza box. <laughs> uh, it says the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles pizza cookbook gift set. Yeah! Okay, so it's a book in a box. And it has like an apron. <laughs> and so it's a cookbook. It's a pizza cookbook. How fun. From the point of view of the Ninja Turtles. So like oh, what... Look. There's even like little cookies, but they look like little pizzas. Yeah. Straight out of the sewers. Yeah, and so I'm sure we could like do a vegan spin on all of those recipes. Oh yeah, cause like uh, pizza dough is, unless you're doing some kind of cheese filled crust, pizza dough is inherently vegan. And then all you have to do is switch out the cheese. Yeah. And I just love a gimmick where it's like, it's a pizza cookbook in a pizza box. I am a sucker for that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you like it? I love it. Yeah, I and I love mine. I can't wait to start cooking. I can't wait to wear, oh, this is too cool. I'll have to post a picture of me wearing this. Maybe I'll wear it for our Zoom call tonight. Oh my goodness, yes, you totally should. Yeah. Shout out to Dear Watchers and 10 Cent Takes. Yeah. We're doing a secret Santa gift exchange. <laughs> and our gift has not arrived on our uh, participants' doorstep yet. Of any of all of the podcasts, they should know that we're the ones who cannot keep a schedule to save our lives. <laughs> so, I thought we were going to talk about how our schedule is all messed up. Lisa. We won't go into detail, but we, you know. <laughs> but I think that's a good place to transition away from our gift giving uh, into our conversation with Elisa Whitney. This is an interview that we've had in the can for a while, and one we've been promising and hyping uh, on the show for quite some time. Time, and I'm really excited to get it out here. And I gotta say, I actually think this conversation fits well 
with Christmas time. You know, her comic, Guilt, really does feel like it shares the same DNA as Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, don't mm, you think? Because she's going to her past? Yeah, going back in time, confronting her old selves, or multiple people confronting their old selves, and recognizing the faults in the past and the faults in the present and maybe being able to do something about, you know, progressing, changing, um, you know, coming to terms with who you are as a human being. Sure, I'll walk that stretch with you. And <laughs> I'll give you one further. I'll I'll commit further than you. I will go so far as to say that Hildy is something of a ghost of Christmas future for Trista. Yeah, totally. The title is Guilt, G-I-L-T, and it stands for the Guild of Independent Lady Temporalists. It comes from Ahoy Comics, the same people who put out The Penultimate Man from Tom Pyre, who is also a former Sandman assistant editor. We've had two former Sandman assistant editors. That means we just need to get Shelly Roberg, AKA Shelly Bond on the show. How fun would it be to have a full house of Sandman assistant editors? Uh, it would be super fun. We gotta make that happen. Yeah. Uh, now, the plot synopsis of Guilt reads as follows, right off of the website. Guilt follows two very different women whose lives become entangled when they both slip through a portal in time to the day they first met in 1973. Trista is the Bill Murray of home healthcare aides, a cynical screw-up who doesn't care for anything but her fluvog, fluvog shoes. How do you say that, Lisa? I don't fluvog? know. I had never heard of them. Very fancy schmancy shoes and her paycheck. She meets her match in Hildy, a sarcastic second-wave feminist living on a steady diet of cigarettes and regret. When Hildy seizes her last chance to return to a fateful day in 1973, she accidentally takes Trista along for the ride. But as the old saying goes, there are no accidents in time travel, and Hildy and Trista don't remember each other, but they met each other 40 years earlier on Hildy's wedding day. Now they've got to come to terms with the past before they accidentally dismantle the future. Lisa and I loved guilt. So much. And I know a lot of people are putting together their best comics of 2022 lists. We're going to be doing a two-part grand extravagant episode. Two episodes. That's how a two-part works. <laughs> and I would recommend seeking out guilt before you put those lists together. Guilt is a tremendously satisfying read, especially if you are like me and you like stories that reward you for keeping track of a million teeny tiny different plot details and character nuances. Yeah, your note-taking skills came in pretty handy with this book. I relied on them significantly. Because this is like, like the best time travel stories. This is a story that folds in upon itself over several layers. And works even better on the reread. And helped tremendously by how likable and relatable her characters are. Hildy is the older character and she is kind of hinging her entire discontent of her present on one decision of her past. Mm -hmm. And she goes like, if I could just go back in time and undo this one thing, my entire present would be different mm. and better. And how many times, especially when we're in it, like the worst funk of funks, we go like, why did I major in music? Why didn't I major <laughs> in anything else? And then um, 
I definitely saw myself in Trista because Trista is a woman I see as being about my age in her 30s. So I'm now in my late 30s. We don't need to talk about that. By now, I mean, I'm turning 39 this week. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. 39 is a great year. Embrace 39. Celebrate 39. Love 39, Lisa. Trista (laughs) is a person who's going like, yeah, I'm this home health care aide. But is that truly what I am? Is that truly my my being is that my purpose on this planet like can i call it a career if i feel like i want to get out of it at any time yeah yeah we 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 feel that real hard here in the love nest my dreams are bigger than my career perhaps absolutely what i really responded to with this book besides what you're saying i totally agree with everything you're saying there but that is all successfully communicated through morissette's incredible acting the oh, illustration in this book is deceptively intricate, mm-hmm. right? Like when you look at it at first, you're like, oh, cool. Uh, it's typical sequential storytelling. The figures are easily discernible, but not overly complicated. But as you read the book and you pay attention to the expressions, they're really extraordinary. Uh, I, we talk about the acting in this book, but Morissette's acting is top tier stuff. Mm. And at times you could easily just think you're watching a show. This feels like a TV series at times. These feel like actors, not drawings. Yeah, it's like weird to be reading a comic book and going like, oh man, this is extraordinarily well cast. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And we get in on that with Lisa Quitney. We talk about the Bill Murray inspiration and Mm -hmm. why that's a little problematic these days. Uh, Go read those headlines. We discuss the fantastical element driving the narrative. We also discuss why Elisa needed to explore herself using these particular characters. We talk a lot about the back matter of this comic book. Yes, we finished this amazing book with this exceptional storytelling. And then she gives us something of a little bit of a masterclass with Morissette about some of the work that went into creating guilt along with some like tips and tricks about like, are you a plotzer or a pantser? How do you collaborate? How do you find a good collaborator? And I think that she's just a person who has had a really interesting career and she realizes that what she's doing is aspirational. Yeah, and would be an amazing teacher, right? Mm. You'd like to take Elisa's class for sure. I don't think we spoil the major twists and turns of the final few chapters of this I hope we didn't. No, I know we didn't. Okay, good. Uh, But I would encourage folks to read the comic before listening to this conversation because I think you'll get more out of it. If you don't, I bet you you will go back and read the comic because, uh, you know, Elise is amazing. She is. And if you are here for the Sandman chatter, yeah, we get into Sandman. We talk about Morpheus. I will not spoil (laughs) how we talk about Morpheus, but you're going to want to hang on to the end of this conversation. And I think we should just leave it there. What do you think, Lisa? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So uh, take it away, Elisa Quitney. And by take it away, I mean, Brad, reintroduce Elisa Quitney. Yeah, you know how it goes. Elisa, thank you so much for joining Comic Book Couples Counseling. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It is our absolute pleasure. We're very excited to talk guilt today. And I thought where we could start is with this idea I read that you were disappointed with the climaxes of the Golden Girls and Sex in the City. 
And this story sort of begins as a correction or revenge against those last episode finales. Yes, yes. I'm always devastated that the important people in pop culture never consult with me before doing things. Of course, with the Golden Girls, I would have been uh, how I guess that was what early 80s, mid 80s. Yep. Um, so I was either, you know, in high school or in college and probably not not going to be consulted with anyway. But OK, so the the last um Spoiler alert, <laughs> just beginning to enjoy the glory that is the Golden Girls. The Golden Girls, by the way, are not in their 80s. They're in their 50s when the series starts. And these are a bunch of women who are living together and uh, dating and having actually more sexual activity than uh, I think there is on Sex in the City. So all of these women are together and enjoying all of their 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 camaraderie. And you've got the the three main women and the mother, but B. Arthur, B. Arthur, who is the sardonic goddess, you know, she would wipe the floor with Bill Murray. She is she is the one. And in the final episode, she gets married <laughs> and leaves her friends and her mother. And Ooh. I'm just thinking. Okay, there's so much wrong with this scenario, even though obviously B. Arthur wanted no more of this. Um, <laughs> and then as if as if no one, you know, not having learned from General MacArthur's mistakes, uh, you know, they just went ahead and did Vietnam, you know, it, it was, sorry, that was a little Korean War reference. Um, <laughs> I just, so then came Sex in the City, which ends with Sarah, Je Sarah Jessica Parker's character, I did not give an introduction to Sex in the City. Sex in the City is basically, of course, for those of you who don't know from the 90s, the golden girls with women in their 30s. And they don't live together. That's, but that's it. That's what you, you can, we can, we can write an entire thesis on this, but okay. Uh, so then Sarah Jessica Parker, who's the linchpin character, her character gets married. And it, it made me realize there's so much wrong with this. It, it actually goes into a, a larger corollary of mine, which is we don't want sitcoms to end. We want mm. them to end by not ending because the joy of a sitcom is you can dip in a classic sitcom at any point. And so we we want, we, I mean, friends are allowed to get married as long as they don't freaking move Chandler and Monica to the, the suburbs. <laughs> right. It, we want it to stay the same because life does not. So- and then in a more specific way, I thought, well, there's this fantasy I think a lot of us have that, you know, we have this, this found family of friends, but they're just a stopgap until we find the one. And for a lot of us, you know, you look back and you think, oh, no, that circle of found friends, they were the ones. That was, that was the moment. And I thought if if B. Arthur and Sarah Jessica Parker could wake up, uh, they would want to go back and undo, you know, particularly, I, I think in, in I, I'm going on for way no, too please. long about sitcoms. No, do it. I'm so sorry. I, I think about them. I, I feel about them. Just don't get me started on The Love Boat, which I realize <laughs> is not a sitcom. But anyway. I was um, just catching your tweets on The Love Boat. Some revelations I had that I was unaware of. There's there's just a lot to unpack with the love boat that I never realized. Um, but yeah, so uh, in addition on Sex and the City in particular, 
the character of Mr. Big always struck me as, um, can I, can I use salty yes. language? Yes, yes please. please. He just always seemed like an asshole. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, kind of an asshole of the kind, if you know the show Bad Sisters, where there's a character called the prick and everyone hates the prick, you know, he seemed like that character. So I, I don't want him to be re redeemed and for her to marry right. him because this does not resemble life. Right. Characters and who are, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was clearly a toxic person. And so to make the end of the story, her ending up with this person who has been causing so much chaos in her life, like just makes zero it sense. It felt like a betrayal. It Big time. Like uh, another, like, like a, like a, like poor idea in those sitcom endings is the idea that when you get married, you're done. You know what I mean? Like you, you're married, you have found your solution. And I like that um, guilt starts with the like, okay, I got married. Turns out not the solution for me. And so she's kind of undoing what many would consider like a happy ending. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, there's, there's, and I also think that the Sarah, the Carrie Bradshaw character is she is the prick to another mm -hmm. you know we're you know there's that that uh internet thing am i the asshole mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and perhaps you know assholery is relative you may be suffering from a relationship with an asshole and yet you may be somebody else's asshole relationship mm, yes but all of that said and done i yeah so the the idea for guilt in part was to go back and try and undo what felt like a pivotal decision that was greatly wrong, wrong on an interpersonal level and frankly wrong on a pop culture level too. I personally love time travel stories and like the more mundane the reason for the time travel, like the more excited I am. Like I don't care about going back in time and you know, killing Hitler or saving the world. I like going back in, in time and saving my parents' marriage or like uh, in Groundhog's Day, like curing someone from being the prick, you know? Um, I love that. And, and I think it's partly because when we have a crisis, the first solutions we always come up with are the solutions that are in the past, right? Like, oh man, if I had not, you know, Hildy, if I had not gotten married, I wouldn't have had this huge diversion in what was a really wonderful time in my life. So like, I've read a little bit about like the initial inspiration, but can you talk a little bit about the temporal shift inspiration directly? Sure. So, I mean, as with many of my ideas, I've lifted this from someone else. So, but I did something very different with it. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved the time traveler's wife. I haven't seen the TV <laughs> series. I actually haven't seen the movie because I loved the book so much and I didn't want I didn't want the movie in my head to be replaced by anything else. Um, and I am weird this way. Oh, no, no, we get it. A hundred percent the same way. Yeah. Every time we watch a, a film of something that we love, it does sort of leave like taints too strong of a word, right. but it's it, like a stain. Like, yes, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it leaves a stain on your original uh, passion for the book. Yeah. And it's hard to unsee the characters that you you know that it, once you've got actors it's hard to get back yeah. to the character in your you head. don't want to recast your imagination yeah but 
I I love that book. I love the fact that uh, the the main character time travels only in his own lifespan, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I had seen anyone do that technique, and I just I thought it was brilliant because it's it is the time traveling that we all do when you're awake at night replaying a failed love affair, the death of someone you love, uh, what you know all these big and little things we time travel back in our own lifespan you know it's not the magic treehouse time travel it's Mm -hmm. you know it's it's wanting to either recapture something or redo something i think what's interesting uh about guilt though is when you go back in time and i don't want to spoil anything but when you revisit your past you also create a new kind of chaos that could be dangerous for others uh and and as the book progresses the characters sort of learn that being trapped in their mistakes in their regret is detrimental and i'm curious about how you came to explore that theme and and uncover it oh sure um well so i i've always said i like my my fantasy hard and my science fiction soft mm. so i i <laughs> You know, I don't want to go into the mechanisms by which things happen, but I like things to be very, very grounded. And this is a side story, but I was once at a world fantasy convention and there was a party in somebody's room. Sorry, this is a long digression, but no, please. Yes. (laughs) And I guess one of the roommates hadn't realized there was going to be an enormous party in his room because he comes in and he's shocked. And then he's like, all right, all right, everybody, shut up, shut up. Everybody, listen to me. What happens in this room stays in this room. And then there's this silence as everyone takes this in and tries to process it. And into it, I piped in and I said, I've never really liked Tolkien. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so there, there, that was my, that was my moment. Of, um, and I, I, for me, the world of Tolkien, rich as it is, just doesn't bear any resemblance to any world I know. And for me, I like fantasy that's very grounded in what I know. So I think about what do I know about the past? Anyone who's lived longer than five years has probably had this experience. You remember something and then someone says, oh, that's not the way I remember it, or that's Mm. not the way it happened. And they add something, or they have this other memory that comes before or after your memory that kind of changes it all. And you realize that you've only had a, a, a very partial memory. And if you were suddenly, you know, pushed back into that moment, there would be all this stuff going on that you've edited out. And I'm not even talking about the stuff you didn't know that was behind the scenes which is also interesting. I'm just talking about the stuff that was on stage, on screen, you were present, but you know, you were just that, that's not what got saved in your file. So that is part of the true memory time travel that that's sort of true to, I think, a lot of our experiences. Mm -hmm. And then there's what I call the, the, the chair at the swimming pool problem of vacation, which is you think that there's a simpler time and that you'll go back to this time and things were better then. 
you know, no cell phones, no, you know, Donald Trump was just uh, an amusing megalomaniac, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. But then you go back and, okay, so you're on vacation and you think, finally, no more schoolwork, no more job, no more whatever it is that, that you know, occupies you. Now I can just relax. And quickly, you begin to have a whole other weird set of worries. Mm -hmm. We've got to go get the croissant at the good cafe, but that's not where the good coffee is. So we need to get the good coffee. And, and if we do that, we're not going to have time for the museum and shopping. And these stupid concerns make you as tense as anything in the real world did. So that that's my long-winded way of saying, I think I'm pretty sure that if I could go back in time to, you know, the mellowest, easiest vacation of my life, I would realize that at the time I was obsessed with some other concern that I've, I've edited out. I'm uh, fascinated by the idea of creators, um, you know, working out their concerns, their issues, their anxieties, and their fiction uh because that's how lisa and i approach fiction you know when we open up a book we go looking for ourselves in that book and i am curious for you is it a proactive thing that you are doing or is it just a natural you know extension of yourself when you are creating of course you're going to be putting uh, your anxieties in and trying to solve them for yourself you know i wouldn't say solve them because the the artifice the part mm -hmm. that is artifice is that i have a plot and i kind of know where i'm going with it which is the opposite of life and i i am a genre i i love genre i love Although I, I should say that my theory is that I am attracted to what is essentially kitty horror, except I dress it up. But in kitty horror, your main point of view character, who is not a bad person, does not, you know, get beheaded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so you can have as much body horror as you like. You can even have some good people suffer. But as long as the moral universe you know, remains more or less intact. It's kitty horror. So I like kitty horror. I I love I love rom-com. I love villanelles and sestinas. I love all that artifice. And once you've got a, a lovely artificial construct, I think it's so fun to make it look as gritty and real as possible. It's mm -hmm. it's kind of like uh, a, having a musical. You know, once you know that you're in a musical where everyone's going to sing their feelings, you can get as gritty and subversive as you like, because it's still this this lovely construct of the musical, kind of like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, a good example of mm -hmm. a musical rom-com hybrid that that plays with all kinds of psychological things. I'm assuming that those creators, they explored things, but not things that were currently eating them up like they had mm. to do the psychological work already in order to crack it open I think it's really hard to both uh you know psychoanalyze yourself in real time and turn it into you know forget art even craft mm. one of the things I you just brought up musicals and it made me think of like when I, like I never got cast when I was in high school and doing high school musicals I never got cast in like 
a, a leading role. I would always have a very small role and then I would be chorus the rest of the time. And so when you're on stage and you're in high school, you come up with all like, all like your own, like little micro plot of like what's happening. And in guilt, there's like 700 yes. micro plots going on. You yes. can totally where's Waldo get lost in this book. And I love every, I love everything you included in the back matter, the little tidbits about creating comics. And you were talking about the difference between a plotter a pantser, and then you are the hybrid, the plotzer. And <laughs> yes. I was wondering like where, where you have your like outline, but then you, you let you go by the seat of your pants around that plot, that outline. And then you kind of join the two. And I was wondering like, does that creative process of like, okay, I have an outline, but I'm not married to it. You know, does that inform kind of the, like the way that you also live your life? Are you like a, a plotzer in life as well? I am, I am a complete plotzer in life and I, yes, and I do a lot of chaotic, uh, uh, quick revising. I have not one or two, but three different books in which I usually try and plot out what I'm supposed to be doing, but I, at, at my heart, I am a, uh, a disorganized improviser. Mm. And, uh, so I, I don't know. And then I, I acquire chaos. I, I have a dog who's 80 pounds and, and headstrong. And I thought, you know, this clearly requires a puppy. Mm. And, you know, people suggested I get a really low key puppy, but I thought, no, no, another working dog that spends all its time trying to figure out problems on its own. So I, I invite chaos into my, into my plotzing process. I really, um, felt represented by the character of Trina in her like kind of like listlessness where she does Trista. Trista excuse me Trista in her listlessness where she's like she she has jobs but she doesn't like have like a career you know in like the more tr like traditional sense of the word um, and I was just wondering what was the inspiration for creating this? Like, cause she's like, totally like, I'm like, okay, I recognize a millennial when I see one, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's me. <laughs> um, so can you talk about her character a little bit? Oh, sure. So I had been doing improv and I was for a while part of, uh, I, this is embarrassing. Is this like embarrassing that, you know, admitting you were in an improv troupe is like the new, uh, admitting you're in therapy. Now no one's <laughs> yeah. embarrassed by therapy, but by, so anyway, I was part of a, an improv troupe and I had this wonderful teacher, Samantha Jones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things she would say is, have an attitude, a strong attitude about any choice you make. So, you you know, if I am coming on stage and I'm a kindergarten teacher, let's have a really strong attitude, either, you know, love it or hate it. Or So I was having a little trouble with Trista. I think, you know, originally she was not, uh, she was not a slacker. And she just, I kept thinking she's not interesting. Something is not, not clicking here. And then I, I could hear Samantha's voice saying, you know, have an attitude. And I thought she's Bill Murray. Yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah. And now, now I feel kind of guilty saying that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's comp. But I was thinking about a female Bill Murray who is, you know, partially just sardonic and screwing up and, and protecting herself, but also, you know, they're, that there is an element of of uh, absurdist detachment to her that you know even if she were amazingly successful she would she would still contain that i guess aubrey plaza would have been the female mm. version but 
for some reason, Bill Murray is what popped into my head. I don't, like the, I think why Bill Murray works so perfectly. D- like if we just p- release yeah. this, if we could go back in time and release this episode <laughs> a Six couple months of months, ago. Ago. yeah, <laughs> um, is that even if he doesn't have the answer, he's still right. Which might be key to the toxicity, but you know, where like, just like marriage is not an answer. Like that's like, you're not done when you have a marriage. You're also not done when you have a career. Like, like, uh, Trissa's life is like, she can have a completely happy and fulfilling life and never have a career. Like it's like, it's optional perhaps. But she gave up. So can I do, I'll do a little spoiler. Cause we do have, yes. we have, you know, one of the uh, trends in modern writing is you have almost no flashbacks mm-hmm. and it's yeah. considered that flashbacks are, you know, definitely uh, a cheat and they take the plot in the wrong direction. And certainly if you're doing time travel, there's no reason to have a flashback, except I should say guilt is filled with flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Um and one of them is uh, with with Trista. So we see that she was for a while a journalist. It was what we we see other careers of hers as well. And she's with a you know a a, a rock star of the time and gets mm-hmm. completely distracted and ends right. up having a fling with him uh, rather than I would think completing the article. And I think that I gave her that. It's it's the plots are part of me you know there was a plan I'm letting go of the plan now and following this new plan and I also thought that there was something deliciously young about that attitude that you know doesn't serve her now that she is no longer in her first youth shall we say yeah yeah I'm I'm interested in the reasoning of bringing Tristan into the story in the first place because you could have told guilt just from Hildy's perspective and her relationship with her friends and wanting to escape Mr. Man. Uh, what was the compulsion to bring the younger character into the story? You know, um, I can't remember exactly how it, it started that I, I think originally she was going to be more of a foil character. And then I realized it was an, a real two-hander. Mm. But I think the inspiration... I think it was two things. So one, I've been thinking a lot about comedy and how do you get comedy on the page? And, you know, I think it's a lot about character interactions and that conflict. And so, yes, you, you've got that with Hildy and her and her friends, but having Trista, it sets up like the odd couple. You've got characters whose goals really, they're, they're each other's antagonists. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that creates a strong um it, it creates a lot of material psychologically and and for comedy and then um the older i get the more i love an ensemble cast mm-hmm. just in terms of what i'm reading and what i'm watching i think that you know for a while everyone was so into ya and i realized i've begun to feel claustrophobic in just one person's head mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i like I love the dynamic of Hildy and Trista because like um, Hildy has tried to undo this marriage a handful of times and she has always failed. And sometimes I feel like in, in my life, I behave better if I'm like uh, in a mentoring position mm-hmm. where like you feel that kind of social pressure to go like, okay, I do actually have to follow through with this because 
I have to be a good example for this other person. So I think it also, for me as a reader, added that element of like, okay, now Hildy has to be on her best feminist behavior because there is this young woman here. Accountability. Yeah, there's that level of accountability there. Yes, I think that that's true. There's also, you know, I think about there there have been a lot of bromantic films mm-hmm. um not as many traditionally i don't know romantic romance um where you've got that buddy that buddy romance dynamic and i i think you know i find it really interesting so you've got rom-com energy where there's there's always a best friend who's there to be supportive but i mean friendship is so much more complex and uh, interesting and, and has these different seasons. And I think that, you know, I, I've, again, I'm a genre person. I love romance, but I, I've, you know, begun to think how many of the tropes of romance also work for buddy romance mm-hmm. and you get a lot of the satisfaction. You don't get the clinch, I guess, but short of that, you get so much of the energy and, you know, in my life, and I think in a lot of people's lives, you know, our friends and those connections we have even across generations, you know, they they offer a lot of zest and uh, sometimes angst. And friendships are so conditional where like if you're in a romantic relationship, you do like weirdly feel this obligation to like, okay, to win, we have to keep this going where <laughs> like, um, it, like with a friendship, like you go like, oh man, uh she's dating, she's dating my ex now so let's let's slowly walk this friendship back so i i love the friendship between hildy and trista but i also love the example of the friendship with her two original friends her two bridesmaids um because they are they are kind of in this flux of like do we keep this friendship going is this like under these conditions can our our friendship still like like maintain itself and that's also I mean it's funny because there was definitely inspiration from sex in the city and the golden girls but it's also deeply personal so my mom uh got divorced in the 70s and she had two best friends and the the two best friends Peggy and Edie we all the combined families of these divorced women and the kids we would do uh thanksgivings together we would you know our 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 moms you know would would it was an extended family and edie ended up unfortunately dying uh young but i i watched how you know over the years the families grew closer together grew more distant and and so that was sort of part of the inspiration I think is that is that especially when marriages or romantic partnerships break up then friendships sometimes really do fill that void in a different way well you have a circled narrative from many different aspects you know comics novels uh, YA also as an editor also as a podcaster exploring Sandman from your very unique perspective can you talk a little bit about how approaching stories from so many different angles has sharpened your own storytelling? Oh, thank you. Um, I think I, I started out writing. So my early influence, my father, Robert Sheckley was uh, a science fiction writer known for humorous short stories. 
and um, was considered an uncredited influence on Douglas Adams, although Douglas Adams insists that this existed, that this was not the case. Um, so I, my, my dad was not on the scene, but my earliest influences were a lot of his short stories. Mm. And I was reading them, you know, before there was YA, you just picked up whatever was in the bookshelf. And so I, I was reading a lot of um, science fiction and comics. Um, and, and then, you know, weird historical fiction like Frank Yerby. And so I, I tried writing all of it. And I think, you know, some things I was naturally better at than others. I, I've always longed to do long historical, you know, Game of Thrones type fiction. I am not sure that it is my, my sweet spot, but, um, I think that I heard voices more and I wasn't as visual a writer. And then in my 20s, I started to work uh, as a staff editor, you know, first as an assistant editor on The Sandman. Uh, and then I, I, you know, and then I became a full editor. I was also writing for comics. And I had to learn how to be more visual. And then I, I also teach and I love teaching. So I, I tried to break down what I'd learned to do. And I, I thought of it like this. Sometimes you have to give yourself an assignment. You say mm -hmm. to yourself, Today, I'm a casting director. Mm. And what would I need to ask for actors or actresses uh, trying out for this role? Because you wouldn't want to rule out. I, I think if you think about casting, it's a great way of only finding the telling details about the character and not, you know, like she had very thin lips or <laughs> her hair was the shade of blonde, you know, because that isn't really the, the most important thing or then I would say to myself, okay, now I'm a, I'm an art director. I'm a location scout. And, and I would try to break down the, the, some people do it naturally. I do not do these things naturally. Uh, so I learned that. And then anytime that I see something or read something that I love, I think, how can I steal that? So I, I, you know, Fleabag obsessed me. Yeah. And I found everything I could find about Phoebe Wallerbridge talking about writing. And the thing that really struck me is she talked about audience and she talked about using humor to soften people up and then sucker punch them with something very serious and then, you know, bring them back into humor. And that was, you know, obviously not that long ago, but I, I constantly feel like I am trying to learn things or sometimes relearn things that maybe I knew as as a writer but yeah going whenever I'm doing more comics I think about the visual and I think about all that we can learn from the visual and by the way having an artist like Moise Alan as I his real first name uh works with me in a very collaborative way and so that informs it because you know I I think it's I think it's hysterical to have somebody open up a medicine cabinet and find a diaphragm with a cobweb on it. Right, right. But, you know, you have to have someone really committed to details um, about that. And and to me, there's humor, but there's also discomfort because I think as a culture, we're, we're you know, we're very committed to exploring the sexuality of, you know, disturbingly young characters, mm -hmm. but we, we don't often want to acknowledge the ways in which older people were and maybe are still sexual beings. I thought of, I gave, Brad and I have an under the table, like, 
like thing that we do when we're doing interviews where I'm like, tap, tap, I have a question, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. And I tap, tapped, and now I have two questions in my head at the same time. I've had it. Okay. The first one, and so you can just, you can pick one or both. It's up to you. <laughs> I'm giving a smorgasbord of options. Um, so the first thing is, I love what you said about, you know, being, being a casting director, because I do find this book to be exceptionally well cast and you- And well such, acted as- And well acted. Yeah, yeah. And you, you did such a, like you and Morsey did such a great job of really creating women who look like real women, like, and distinctly different um, in a way that like, I found like, so, so inspirational. They look like, they look like people from the grocery store where in comic books, it's like, like you get like a lot of samey, samey types. So that's that process of finding those faces um, would be question number one. Question number two. And bodies. And bodies, yes. And question number two is like, um, is uh, completely tangential. And it is, Hildy's fiance or or uh, in some timelines husband and other timelines ex whatever is Mr. a self Man. yes there was a self-help guru character yeah yeah, yes. yeah, yeah yeah yes and this is comic book couples counseling and so we do read a ton of self-help books and um I love you the taking of the kind of like predatory aspect of it especially in the 70s where women are going like okay time to be feminist how do I do it right? Let's ask this guy, you know? <laughs> so um, I would love to know your inspiration for that um, uh, self-help guru That's a lot. character. I know. Oh, sure. Okay. Terrible form. <laughs> no, no. Um, all right. Let's see. Starting with the bodies and the faces. Alan and I both delight in character work of this kind. And so you know, we we'll talk about who are the inspirations and we'll go back and forth. And um, and it was really important to me that the characters dress in ways that were sort of fun and funky uh, so that it's a little more, you know, a little more glamorous. I mean, as mm -hmm. you can see me sitting, I'm wearing, you know, I, I have a million T-shirts, but I wear three of them and I and I have a million flannel shirts and I wear all of them. So in my in my real life, I basically dress in dog hair and flannel. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I love the idea of of costuming and all of that with with the women and Alain's interest in acting and the pacing of things is a huge part of what makes guilt funny because mm -hmm. I can't write funny with an artist who's just, you know, not going to pick the right expression or micro expression and divide things. Alain loves doing lots of panels for timing. And I write and rewrite my scenes for the, the repartee timing. But sometimes he'll see another way of doing it. And then I'll go back and I'll tweak the dialogue. So this is all it's we, we do a lot of acting stuff. I, you know, I keep sending him back uh, to to watch more Golden Girls because as I, I have to say, it's just one of the great shows. And I, I discovered it only recently because in the 80s, I wasn't interested in watching women in their 50s. There's uh, been a resurgence of yeah, that Yeah, big time. Yeah. You, you can't throw a rock and not hit some merch, some Golden yeah. Girls merch. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, there's, and I, I, for once I am in agreement with the culture. <laughs> um, okay, so now Mr. Man. So originally he was gonna be sort of based on Mr. Big in mm -hmm. Sex and the City. Um, and I was also thinking of, uh, what's his name? Uh, is it Eckhart Tolle or Werner Eckhart? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and then there's another character. So he's actually um, a friend of the family that I grew up with, uh, Warren Farrell. And, uh, and so I was thinking, I, I actually know him. And I was thinking about trying to create a character that is charismatic, that is a bit of a showman, but I didn't want him to be just evil. I, mm -hmm. I realized that part of my goal with this character is he never says anything which I would consider wrong. So if you mm. go back, it's it's kind of easy to So if you look back at everything that the the uh, Mr. Man character says, he's never just wrong or mistaken or you know that the stuff that he says is is actually kind of supportive and still you know for hildy he he is an asshole mm -hmm. and uh probably for you know some of the other characters as well and um but there are a lot of characters that were minor characters that grew into their roles and maybe that's part of you know thinking in ensemble terms i had one whole section of the book where I was a little surprised by the the situation I'd gotten myself into. I thought, oh, I know what happens now. This character is going to uh, be impacted in this way. And I wrote it and then I was stuck for a week. Mm. And finally I said, that, that was the wrong choice, wasn't it? And so I went back and realized, I, I'm trying to say this without spoilers, right. but um, if you look at, the names of my characters it looks like I would have known throughout the way things should go because it mm. looks like that was a deliberate choice but that was only my subconscious which <laughs> knew what it was doing while my conscious was blundering around like an imbecile amazing yeah. awesome thank you for that um before we get out of here uh we we promised ourselves we'd ask you about Sandman um yeah, yeah Lisa, I love talking about Sandman. <laughs> Lisa and I are currently one of our podcast projects is we're reading the comic one issue at a time, one episode at a time. Oh, and we're fantastic. 48 issues in. I have never read the comic before. I read it in college, but that was like so long ago. So so I barely remember it. Like for oh. me, like Sandman was like fever dream. Can I just say that Neil, you know, I've known Neil since the 90s. And at one point he started sending me the scripts and mm -hmm. reading the scripts, reading the comics again, I also informed some of guilt because that idea of having all of these nooks and crannies and all of these different avenues and things that you could explore further, that was, you know, it really helped to be reading Sandman at that time. Yeah, that's it's awesome that you say that because you like like we were saying earlier, the guilt has so many moments in it that could spin off into a whole other whole universes. other universes. Yeah, like the pilots. I like I yes, want a comic about the pilots. You know. Oh, oh, can I can I just say so? Yeah. I I got Neil to to read Guilt, and he's been very enthusiastic about it. And um, but he said, you know. He said, I love this, but you've crammed about 12 issues worth of material into five issues. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. totally. I say bonus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Director's cut. And, and so one of the things that Lisa and I have kind of delighted on as we've been reading this, the Sandman issues is like just 
tracking the credits of every issue and then, you know, watching the, the transitions of the assistant editors and uh, um, our, our listeners are the professionals. They yeah. really know what's going on behind the scenes, but we've told them like, don't try not to spoil, stuff don't for spoil us. anything for us. Don't tell us who went to where and why they're doing what. Um, but I was wondering, like, if you could just relate a little bit about what it's like now and we haven't listened to your podcast because we're in the middle of ours, but we yeah. do plan to. Well, what it's like now to reflect on that with your partner in the podcast and like look back and realize or at least come from a point of view where the Sandman has now become. Yeah, you're doing your own little temporal shift. Yeah, it seems very stressful. <laughs> it It has been strange. I mean, one of the things that's been lovely for me to talk about with Lonnie, but I've also gotten a chance to talk about it with Neil, is how my read of Morpheus has changed. Mm. So, and my son is watching it and, you know, he's 27. And I, I said, how old do you think Sandman is? You know, just, just as a mythical creature, but also if he were in his lifespan. And my son said something like, I don't know, 40? Oh, and, dear God. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I don't know how old he seemed to me in the 90s. He seemed sort of ageless, but endless. <laughs> but now he both seems like an immortal character and he also seems thoroughly in his 20s. Mm. And all of them, with the exception of Death, who's, you know, the Monica of the endless, um, you know, she she's, uh, you know, she, she seems to have her sense of self more developed, but you know, whether it's desires, sibling rivalry, uh, Morpheus's, you know, epic grudge holding, there, there's all these, and obviously some people remain this way throughout their life, but I think part of it is I see them as going through a younger, psychologically, they seem younger. You know, in in and I I mentioned that to Neil and he said, oh, ab absolutely, absolutely, because but you know we can't we have different themes that run through different, you know, you're you're either in your Midsummer Night's Dream phase or your King Lear phase, you know, it's you, just life has different uh, resonances. So that I don't mean to say anything belittling about it. Those are you know, vital and important uh, uh, issues. But yeah, I, I just, uh, wait, I was going to say something else about the 90s versus now, which is there was a messy unexpectedness when I was reading Sandman because I knew that it was coming out. It, it was sort of Neil at times felt like an oracle because he didn't know precisely what he was going to do next. And I know this because I had to get the next issue blurb for the letter column. Mm -hmm. And yes. I'd say, I need to write something. And he says, well, I don't know it yet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you got to give me something. And I think I made him write uh, one of the issues because he, you know, blurbled something and then, <laughs> and then to it. was trapped to it. Yeah. But I, th I think that there was a feeling of improv about it. And now, now both, you know, the whole shape of the thing and, you know, and, and now you have a more mature uh, creator coming back. It's like that. I forgot the name of this famous piano player and I'm doing piano player fingers uh, <laughs> who 
who's famous for doing, I think it's the Goldberg variations yeah. mm. as a young man and then towards the end of his career. And it's the Gould? same piece of music. Glenn Gould? No. Glenn Gould's an actor. Yeah, no. I'm going to, it'll be in the notes. <laughs> it'll be in the notes. So yeah, uh, sorry, yeah, long-winded that... answer. <laughs> Love it. I have one thing to say. I see something on your, what my main difference with uh, like, so I read it when I was like 18 or 19 and, and reading it now is like, I saw Morpheus as so fuckable. I thought he was so hot, <laughs> so dreamy, so, oh, you know, he's so deep. And now I read it, I'm like, oh man, he's a handful. He's got to get, <laughs> he, he's got to work his empathy much a little, little bit more before he can lie with this. <laughs> I have that with Hob Gadling. I kept thinking oh, like, mm. oh man, I totally want to date Hob Gadling. That old, you know, dying smugs game. And, uh, <laughs> and now I just think, you know, we're all mugs. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. We're, so we're, we're at, we're one issue away from completing brief lives. Mm-hmm. Here's Brad from the future with a quick spoiler warning. We're going to spoil some minor things regarding Sandman brief lives. And that arc in particular has radically altered my impression of Morpheus, but also just the endless and, you know, maybe they are in their 40s rather than being these immortal beings like I thought yeah. they were. And it's been so much fun revisiting it. Uh, so thank you for indulging us uh, and talking a little Sandman with us. Wait, can I just say that yes. in a weird way, I sometimes think that the whole Harry Megan drama is kind of like the endless. Oh, oh no. Okay. Elaborate. <laughs> I'm okay. I have to do it in a non spoiler way. Well, you know, one of the big themes of Sandman is duty and family versus uh, individual freedom and the ability to pursue your own path. And I, I'm just looking at the whole Harry, Megan, you know, uh, uh, Oprah nexus, and I'm thinking it's, it's kind of funny to me. I, I, now see see sandman themes writ you know kind of it in a non-fantasy way interesting i like like i i right now we're we're on uh the main feed we're also talking about teenage mutant ninja turtles (laughs) and so sibling dynamics is like always on my mind nowadays but like with the endless and with um destruction in particular like i do feel those same pressures a redhead of like who's a redhead <laughs> like of like silly so like i'm the one who's like let let like why isn't everybody fulfilling their roles right now like i'm a little bit more yeah. like uh i'm a little bit more like morpheus in that it's just like okay we agreed all at birth to do this the rest of our lives together and now you i'm know? like oh my god should i not have said that about no it's okay about destruction oh, wait, oh we've I, met him we should- Oh, we've oh, met yeah. him. We've met him. Okay, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, you should yeah. give a spoiler alert for people listening to this. In we, case will. They, we will. Yeah, we will. We will. We said his name and everything. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, the prodigal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I also... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Have you guys seen Bad Sisters? No, I have not. I'm aware you, of it, but I have not watched it. If you ever want to do a, a, a special episode about Bad Sisters, you've got, I mean, Family Dynamics gone bad it's it's wonderful so i love that stuff all right coming away with some recommendations that's pretty great alisa thank you so much uh for chatting with us uh obviously we loved guilt yes a a lot and uh we're excited for the guilt universe yes the expanding guilt universe well how's that little french boy doing (laughs) (laughs) um 
you know, uh, uh, he grows up to be a comic book artist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I wow. felt there, were, there was, I just want to say that I put that in because there's so much of my childhood in this. I had to make sure that Alan got in too. Amazing. Oh. I love it. Love it. Uh, I just made that connection. I, yeah, I, I did the, I had to, I laughed like I understood what she was talking about. Th and then I felt thank the Thank you for making that connection. <laughs> We're, oh, that's awesome. Okay. All right. Awesome. Uh, Elisa, so before you uh, depart, uh, where can our listeners find you? All, they can find you in the show notes because all the links are there, but in case they don't read those show notes, where can they find you? Well, for the time being, I'm on Twitter uh, <laughs> at a Quitney. I am, by the way, the only person who didn't notice the blue check. Everyone's yeah. like, well, to be verified. I'm like, there's a thing called verified. I'm just a fool. We have been chasing verification like it really means something. And now all of a sudden we're like, okay, walk it back. And it's apparently way cooler to not think that the check is cool. <laughs> Well, there I am. It's I guess it's like prostitution because you know if you pay for it, it's, oh, it's yeah, yeah not then it's the same not, thing. It's not worthwhile. Um, but yes, okay. I'm I think I'm on Instagram, but I don't do anything on Instagram. I I'm on Facebook and I'm less and less there. But uh, yeah, so Twitter has been the main place that I've been uh, in as much as I'm anywhere. But uh, you know, just walk your dog a lot in the Hudson River Valley, you'll probably run into me. All right, we'll be on the lookout. <laughs> I'm I'm Googling the, the Goldberg variations because I don't want, I was a music major and I don't, Glenn Gould. It was Glenn Gould. It was Glenn Gould. Uh -huh. you? I was the one who said Gould and you just named an actor. Yeah, no, I, I Elliot Gould, when I when you said it wasn't Glenn Gould, I was like, oh my, I, Elliot Gould. Okay. I knew Gordon Gould, who is an actor who was the father of one of my friends and he was in Amadeus and in the 80s, and when I was in high school, I went to a party with like uh, all the, the cast members of Amadeus. And oh, I so cool. remember anything about it. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> that you need to temporally shift, go back. I love yeah. Amadeus. That's another one where you like watch it in high school and you're Amadeus, like, oh man, Mo Mozart is so fuckable. And then as an adult, you're like, oh no. <laughs> Oh my God, we, I, 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 now I need to listen to, I, I like that you're thinking about who is fuckable because oh, that fully. is so much, so much. I mean, all of, 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 uh, Richard Armitage, you know, I'm, oh, I'm constantly, yeah. you know, because of him, I find Georgette Heyer fuckable. Yeah. That's the entire <laughs> reason I read comic books. Like I'm not in it for like the fights or that. I'm like, Who's doing it? That's yeah. why I love X-Men. It's just like everybody, everybody yeah. all the time. Yes, yes. I, I discovered X-Men, the, the most fuckable team. Yes, there's someone for everyone, at least one. <laughs> oh, that's so true. Oh my gosh. Uh, Elisa, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy, we can talk to you all day. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll definitely have to come you, have you come back on for our Bad Sisters episode. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, I would love that. You guys are amazing and I'm going to start listening to you. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Lisa, all that Morpheus effability conversation. Woo, steamy. <laughs> well, we're not comic book family counseling. We're comic book <laughs> couples counseling. And sometimes the conversation gets a little adult. I just really appreciate that Elisa went there with you. Clearly, by the end of that conversation, we were feeling pretty comfortable and conversational. And you just were like, yeah, no, we're going to talk about it. I think there is something to the like little emo girl who lives inside all of us, crushing on the tall, 
mysterious guy who's throwing red flags left and right. And we're like, no, we're still on this ride. What I love about Elisa is that she is still clearly as much of a fan Mm. as she was when she was working on Sandman. And she doesn't feel like one of those insiders who's heard it all and is kind of tired of the masterpiece that they were associated with. Clearly, because of her podcast, she's still all about exploring all the avenues of Sandman, and that includes the effability of Morpheus. Yeah, I love the idea of going like, I can be a participant and I can be a fangirl. Those can coexist. And I think to celebrate it, I would like to rank the Endless from (laughs) most effable to least effable, and look out, Destiny, you're gonna get your feelings hurt. Oh, oh. Yeah, least effable, way down at the bottom. Below despair? Yeah, oh, oh shit, I forgot about despair. <laughs> despair is at the bottom, okay. just because she's sad, and yeah. she, I think she needs to get I don't her. think Destiny would be good in bed, because he knows how it's gonna end. <laughs> or he knows how it should end, <laughs> and, he, like, and he has that, like, cause, uh, yeah, delirium is like, you don't, everything you know isn't inside that book. Is Morpheus at the top, or is it actually delirium or is it actually death? Death's at the top for Brad, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for Brad. Death's at the top. This is getting real personal. Is death, where? where? So here's mine. Okay, here's let's mine. Because mine let's is ready. Right. Well, clearly it wasn't. I Clearly I haven't thought this through. Lies. Most effable to me is Morpheus. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, followed by desire. Okay. Followed by death. Okay. Then delirium? Then delirium. Okay. Then despair. And no, no. then destiny. No, what about destruction? Oh, I forgot destruction. The prodigal son. Oh shit! Oh, I've. Uh, we don't swear on the main feed. Okay, let me do that again. Okay. Um, yeah. So I would put destruction before delirium. Oh really? Yeah, because delirium is you know she's you like fragile. that red beard. Yeah, I do like it. I I do like a beard sometimes. <laughs> oh, lassie. Like to mix it up. <laughs> uh, you made me shave. I did because it it was chafy. Because it's hard to get beyond, like the way my beard works is it's like a bunch of fly hairs and they become (laughs) really rock hard and pointy. It's hard to get beyond the razor bladed nature of my beard. Yeah, it was sharp. Very sharp. Sharp. Only once have I gotten beyond that stage and it's 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 because he had broken both of his elbows so he couldn't shave. Correct, correct, correct. Uh, All right. Well, we now know Lisa's ranking. What's Brad's ranking? I honestly, I mean, death's at the top. And then Morpheus, and then it's the same after that, right? I think that's the way it goes. Yeah. Right. Everybody wants a kiss on death. I know. Manic pixie dream death. And with that laundry aired, I think we need to get out of here. Yeah. Uh, uh, Merry Christmas to those that celebrate. Happy Hanukkah. Just a happy general holiday feeling to all our listeners. Yeah. We've had a wonderful 2022. It's hard to believe we're at the end. I actually think this will be our last episode of 2022. I know we made some promises about getting our best of 2022 episode and our last Ronin episode out before the new year. It's just not going to happen, friends. (laughs) That is how we are going to kick off 2023 with our two-part extravaganza ranking well, not ranking, celebrating the best comics of 2022 because it really was a banger year. And like last year, we're going to have a whole host of special guests join the show to tell us their favorite comics from the year as well. Our end of the year extravaganza is always a really special episode. And we are still 
panicked reading comics, not not wanting to miss anything that's really good. I got to get Friday Volume 2 in your hands before we record those episodes. It's in the stack, and I have already finished Volume 1, so now I am prepared to read Volume 2. It gets even better. I'm so excited for myself. Um, And then we're also working on our last Ronin episode to close out our TMNT arc. Yeah, uh, I've loved exploring the Ninja Turtles, and even though the last Ronin episode is probably going to be our last turtle episode for a while unless we get a special guest star that we're still working on uh but i also think that even when we conclude with the last ronin and whether or not we get that special guest star they're a series that we will return to again in the future four episodes on the ninja turtles is not enough to discuss their their relationship dynamic and then we have a creator corner episode coming up with kelly thompson and meredith mclaren talking the black cloak that comic we've read the first three issues so good very excited for that book to get out there in the world. Maybe the first great book of 2023. Who's to say besides us? Cause it's our show. It reminds me of when monkey meat came out on the first Wednesday of January, the yeah. Judy Baugh comic. And you're like, Oh, that's going to end up being on the top 10 list. So black cloak could be the similar situation. Then on January 29th, you guys are all going to come hang out with us at the Alamo draft house, Winchester for our screening of Howard. The Duck with four color fantasies. It's going to be a party. We have so many gifts for y'all. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a trivia contest before the screening. We will be giving away a Marvel Legends what if version of Howard the Duck, the action figure, plus classic Howard the Duck magazine issues. And we have pins for the first 25 people who arrive. Uh, no, I think it's the first 50. First so. 50, we're, we're our, uh, like, we're calling our shot. Yeah, yeah, we've sold 20 tickets already. Yeah. There are plenty of seats left. Get on them now. Yeah, we're sitting in the second row, if second you wanna row. know. That's where we like to sit. And if you're a patron, oh, you yeah. get in for free. Your ticket is on us. But you have to ask for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, several people have already asked. They're getting their tickets. Yeah. Oh man, we have so much to do, so little time. Brad, what? do you know what would really help this situation? Nope. A little time travel. Oh. Do you wanna go to the Upper West Side with me? I sure do. Let's go. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. If you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show posters, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter and Hive. It's back up. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Hive Social at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your left hand full. And your psychic rapport 
open. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. In this episode, we are traveling responsibly as members of the Guild of Independent Lady Temporalists through the Mermudish Rainbow. I was going to be so <laughs> impressed if you got this right on one I go. know, and I felt you being impressed and it, it uh, my self-sabotaging <laughs> tendencies kicked in. Well, good. Yes sucked it up that first round. Let's see if you can do it well on the second round. I got the clap. <laughs> 